My name is Rob. I'm an alcoholic. You caught me by surprise. See, I was like just comfortable waiting for countdown and stuff. Feedback. Somebody help me. Oh man. We good? Okay. Now last night, you guys are um, gluttons for punishment out here, I guess. You know, this is two nights in a row you got to hear this guy, so I appreciate you already. You know, if you're going to sit through this, I'm going to give it to you. You know, uh, that's on you, you know. Um, and last night, somebody said, Ralph, I thought you said you weren't going to talk fast. And actually, I wasn't talking fast, you know, so you really don't. So let me really rev it down a couple. But we got a long way to go in a short time to get there. So I like to try to get it all in, you know. So I was talking to somebody at the break. And, um, you know, this is not because I'm up here and I'm trying to get points, though I am up here trying to get points. But that ain't why I'm going to make this statement. I have been really, really, really impressed and surprised by this fellowship. When I came out here, uh, you know, the only person I've been communicating with has been Reuben. And that's not to say he gave a bad impression of you guys. <laughs> but we've been communicating via email. And, you know, I knew this was a, you know, fairly, uh, as conferences go, a fairly young conference, and I thought this was a fairly young fellowship, and I thought, okay, I'm going over here to Norway, and, you know, I, okay, maybe, you know, people will be kind of stoic, because the only Norwegian I know from my neck of the woods is Clancy, and, you know, so I had all you guys as many Clancy's, you know, this, and so, um, and, and, but, A, the enthusiasm, B, uh, just the reception, and then C, here's the, here's the kicker. I really was not prepared for the level of recovery that's up in this piece. And you guys are doing the damn thing. You know, the speakers, the people I had the opportunity to talk with, uh, to the, on the sidebars, you know, um, man, I am, I'm fed, you know, because you bring me out here and I'm like, okay, people think I, I'm a member. I'm just a, I'm just a member. So when I go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, uh, A, even when I'm talking, I don't even always, I'm, I'm with you guys. Let's see what this guy's going out to say because I don't always know. And then, but to really hear the message, um, from you guys. Uh, Reuben was translating, so the people he translated for, I hope that's what you guys said. You know, he, I don't know. I don't know. He made you sound good, though, so. And then, uh, the panelists that I had the opportunity to share with today, Frederick and, you know, uh, Salon, you know, you guys, thank you for including me in your company. And then tonight we heard the speakers, and uh, Elizabeth, thank you. You know, thank you. And um, so now, now I got all that out the way. Now let's get into what we came here for. And we're getting ready to do a countdown later on. I didn't know it was the level of recovery that's out here. I know we had people with 20-some-odd years of recovery out here. I didn't know we would have people who were out here bringing that kind of message. And no disrespect to you guys with your 20-something years. No disrespect at all. But to my new friend John with his two months, my new friend Christopher with three months, I came here for you. I came here for you. Those are the guys I got an opportunity to talk to. And they stand as representatives for everybody else in here who are trying this thing on for size. They stand as representatives for everybody else in here who's new to this fellowship, this thing of ours. You know, I like to call it, you know, I kind of sound, you know, I'm close to it, at least I like to kind of sound gangster, our thing. You know, but this thing of ours, you know, and I invite you 
on behalf of all other members here, I invite you to try us on for size. Take a look. If you're anything like me, it's probably the best step you can take from the cradle to the grave. I don't say it is because I'm tonight's speaker. You know, I've been doing this thing a couple of days, and you know, the guy that's standing in front of you, let me give you full disclosure. The guy that's standing in front of you tonight, you know, uh, I am an impress you guy. I'm a make you like me guy. I'm a what I think you think of me guy. Now that I know the kind of recovery here, I'm tempted to drop some page line references from the book on you, let you know how well I know the book, how versed I am with it. But I remember being new to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember them taking me to a meeting like we are tonight. I remember the speaker standing up in front of the group, somewhat like I am tonight, hair comb, eyes bright, dressed pretty nice, stringing sentences together real well. I remember thinking to myself that night, I know this cat ain't been where I've been. I know he has not felt what I've felt. I know he has not done what I've done. What can this lame tell me? So it's very important that I let you know that the man that's standing in front of you tonight is not the same one that stumbled and staggered into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous some few summers ago. I'm going to share with you in a general way what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like today in the hopes that one of our new friends will be thinking like I was thinking. Man, I used to do the same things. I used to feel the same way. Or more important, I too want to have this thing. Grew up in South Central Los Angeles, one of six boys, stayed in a little two-bedroom apartment. Moms and pops stayed in one room, six boys stayed in three bunk beds in the other room. And my earliest memory of my old man was he was an alcoholic and I didn't want to be like him. My father wasn't abusive and my father wasn't violent. He was an absentee drunk. Every other Friday, like clockwork, you knew he would not show up with a check. It would be a kid in the neighborhood who would feel like it was his duty to tell my family how my old man would perform up at the pool hall. And I feel ashamed and I feel embarrassed and those are feelings I'm familiar with from a real early age. Pops got put out when I was eight or nine years old and my mom proceeded to raise six boys by herself. Don't know about you guys over here in Norway, but when I grew up, Ideal family life we took from the TV programs of the day. And in the States, the ideal families on TV when I was a kid was Father Knows Best, My Three Sons, Ozzy and Harriet, Leave It to Beaver, and that was not going on in my house. When you're grown, you get something that's called perspective. And perspective works a little bit like this. Got a mom that raised six boys by herself. My mother... When we were kids, my mother was on welfare, social welfare at the time, and she refused to settle for that. And my mom put herself back through high school. She put herself through college. She worked two jobs. She took in clothes that she washed and ironed for other people. And when you're grown, you look back on your life and say, damn, I had a hell of a mom. Look how she sacrificed to raise these six boys. But when you're a kid, about nine or ten years old, and you come home from school on a Wednesday afternoon with a couple of partners, and you hit the front door, mom's is in the living room with an ironing board up and a rag on her head, you don't feel proud. You feel ashamed and embarrassed. And you stop bringing partners home from school. And if your name is Ralph, you start living in the prison I've lived in much of my life. And that's the prison of what I think you think about me. So I don't know what you think about me, but I'm trapped in what I think you think about me. And I would do whatever it takes to shape and form and mold your opinion around I'll whine you, I'll dine you, I'll woo you, I'll con you, I'll bully you, I'll manipulate you, I'll buy you. Please like me. Now, I don't particularly have to like your ass, but please like me. So I'm growing up like that. New friends to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you go to enough meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll hear a lot of common themes from our members. And one of the common themes that you'll hear from most of our members is I never felt like I fit in. And that's not a part of my story. I'm a little guy. I like a lot of attention. I've never really been interested in fitting in. I've always wanted to stand out. And as a result of that, I achieved and accomplished a few things coming up in life. Now, my brother Ron, he's a year younger than me, three months older than me in recovery. And Ronnie goes out and he talks a lot, too. And when you hear Ron's story, if you ever heard his story, it's a trip. 
You know, we came from the same household, slept in the same bed, his feet to my head, vice versa. Came from the same household, came out of it with entirely different perspectives. If you listen to Ronnie's story, he always wanted to be somebody else, doing something else, being somewhere else. Me, on the other hand, I could not imagine being anybody other than me. When I was a kid, I couldn't imagine being anybody other than a young brother growing up in Watts in the 60s. It was a changing time. It was a turbulent time. It was a lot going on. I was going to make a difference in my community, and I was going to be somebody. I always grew up thinking that. I got that kind of mom. You know, even though I share that she's got her story, it's amazing in and of itself. And so, you know, and the reason I share that with you guys is you'll hear a lot about dysfunctional families. You'll hear a lot about the circumstances surrounding our drinking. But that's not what made me an alcohol. I, I'm the kind of kid that went to sleep on Christmas Eve with all his clothes on because I couldn't wait for Christmas Day to come. Now, my mom only had 40 or $50 as her budget for these six boys, so we weren't getting a lot. I might get some Chinese checkers, we might get checkers, might get a Monopoly game, I might get a baseball glove. But on Christmas Day in our house, it would be smells when you woke up and it would be cooking and the boys would open the gifts and family would come over and it would be singing. And I couldn't imagine being anybody other than me. And the reason I share that is because I'm not here to report to you guys because a lot of times we get caught up in the circumstances around it. I'm not here to report to you guys that I'm an alcoholic because I'm a poor kid from the ghetto. Look at where I am. I'm in Norway and the room is full. I'm not here to report to you guys that I'm an alcoholic because we grew up and we didn't have no money. Somebody in here grew up with a silver spoon. I'm not here to report to you guys tonight that I'm an alcoholic because I'm a product of a broken home. Somebody in here grew up with both parents. I'm not here to report to you tonight that I'm an alcoholic because my daddy was. Somebody in here grew up with parents that never drank. I'm not here to report to you tonight that I'm an alcoholic because I'm a little guy. There's some big guys up in here. I'm an alcoholic for two reasons and two reasons only. One, when I take one, can't tell you when I'm going to stop. Two, when I sincerely don't want to put it in me and start that cycle up again, I put it in me and start it up again anyway. I'm bodily and mentally different. That's it. That's all. The rest is my story, and my story goes a little bit like this. Most folk had a guy like me in your classroom, and, you know, I was always student body president. I was class president. I was a straight-A student. I was teacher's pet. I played ball. I made all-stars. On the outside, I should have been okay. On the inside, I've always felt like if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. Yeah, I was teacher's pet. Yeah, I was straight-A student. I would have traded it all in if I just could have been cool. Because if I just could have been cool, because in my neighborhood, it was a whole lot more currency placed on cool than on smart. You know, the guys I grew up with that was cool, it's probably some of them out here right now, you know. They were the ones in the bathroom smoking cigarettes, shooting dice, taking quarters from guys like me that brought us quarters with. And guys knew how to talk to girls, and girls were a mystery to me. You know, I, I don't know what it was about the rest of you guys, but you seem to have something I wasn't built with. You know, 13 years old, guys would be standing around talking about already throwing down with girls. I didn't know you guys were lying, but I would be thinking to myself, how come I don't know about girls? You know, and I just grew up that way, so I was sick. You know, it took me a while to get comfortable telling my story in Alcoholics Anonymous because this is the first place I ever came where folk try to out-bottom each other. I got a home group. My home group is in the middle of a real hard neighborhood at home. You know, it's, it's in the middle. It's on a block called Figueroa, and the home group was 9604 South Figueroa. That was my first home group. And Figueroa is a famous street in L.A., and it's famous because uh, it's an interesting street. Ladies work on Figueroa at interesting hours of the night, and they don't get W-2s. Let's just put it like that. They don't file taxes for their wages, you know. And Figueroa is one of those, is that block, you know, so it's, it's, it's all kind of stuff. And when I would go to meetings there when I was new, guys would be standing. They had interesting stories. They had been to the, to the penitentiary. They had committed these crimes. They had, and I was in the meetings, man, like, ooh, that's interesting. I love the stories. And I wanted a penitentiary story without going to the pen to get it right but my story is mine and I'm not willing to go get another one so the nice speaker you know I'm a shy guy I'm a square and I'm a schoolboy. 
That's my story. And I'm 16 years old, and I have not done anything. That's late in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you knew. You know, and I'm 16 years old, and I get a girlfriend. Now, Ralph with a girlfriend doesn't mean the same thing it means for some of you cats. Ralph with a girlfriend simply means this. I ran with a crew of dudes that went with the same group of girls. One of my boys broke up with this girl. I waited a little time to pass. I told my other boy, look, I want to go with her. He went and asked her, came back and told me. She said, yes, now I got a girlfriend, right? <laughs> Ralph don't do girls. I'm scared of girls, right? So I wouldn't do anything with her. This is my official girlfriend. I'd had other girlfriends before, but this one actually knew she was my girlfriend, right? You know, and um, so I'm not doing much with her because I'm scared. But this particular night, I go out on a double date. Older partner of mine, him and his girl are in the front seat of the car. He's driving. Me and my girl are in the back seat. Go to a drive-in movie. Plastic cup of rum and coke come to the back seat this particular night. And I drank that rum and coke down and it went down real warm and it rushed back to the top of my brain and all of a sudden Ralph's hands started doing things they had never did. His mouth started saying things it had never said. I had arrived. Alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. It gave me the courage to do and to be and to say things I wouldn't do be and say without it. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. The big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, talks about me in lots of places. And it starts talking about me in the front of our book. There's a chapter in the front, new friends, called The Doctor's Opinion. And there's a line in The Doctor's Opinion that jumped out at me the first time I read it. Men and women like me drink essentially for the effect produced by That's why I drank. I like what it did. I'm not overnight alcoholic. I know a lot of members say the first time they took a drink, they were alcoholic from the first drink. That's not my experience. I understand we talk about this disease being progressive in nature because that's how it showed up for me. The first night I drank, I didn't get pissy drunk. I didn't throw up all over myself. I didn't make a fool out of myself. I got a warm, tipsy feeling. I kissed and licked and sucked on my girl in some places I had never done before. And that's how my drinking stayed. I would drink to go out on the weekends and party. I graduated from high school in 1971, and I graduated to higher education in every sense of the word. 1971, I go off to college. I'm at this major university in my hometown, and my drinking was still just on the weekends. By the end of 1971, I'm drinking not only the night of the weekend, but I'm drinking during the day to get ready for the party. By 1972, I'm drinking not only on the weekends, but now I'm drinking during the week after class, and I've added some non-addictive marijuana to the mix. By the end of 1972, I'm drinking, and I'm smoking herb, and I'm selling herb. By 1973, I'm drinking, I'm smoking weed, I'm selling weed, I'm doing other drugs, I'm doing it on a daily basis, and you could not have told me it was anything wrong with the way I was living. The Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous talks about it a certain point in my drinking career, I won't be able to tell the true from the false. And the way that that worked for me was this. Isn't the way that I'm doing it, isn't that the way everybody does it? Why would you be young, with a bright future, with a little bit of money, then chasing women and getting low to come with the territory? In those days, man, if you came over my house and I couldn't offer you something to drink or something to smoke, I wasn't being a good host. And if I went over your house and you didn't do the same for me, not only weren't you being a good host, wasn't coming over your house no more. You know, for what? We didn't have anything to discuss. You know, in 2015, no disrespect to our young friends. I don't mean new friends, young friends. I'm glad I grew up at the time and in the era I grew up. You know, I grew up at least in the States in the late 60s and early 70s. You go to a concert, you didn't even have to know your neighbor. You just pass and stuff. You know, even though the 60s and 70s was a, was a turbulent time, at least back at home, and it was a changing time, you know, in, in some ways it seemed like a simpler time. In 2015, you got to worry about practicing safe sex because you got deadly sexually transmitted diseases. You got to worry about all kind of stuff. Back in those days, I'd go to a club, I'd have a one-question interview for a girl. You get high? If not, next. I don't need to know your sign. I don't need to know your last name. I don't even need to know what you... Let's get to the basis of this relationship. Are you doing what it is that I'm doing? And it was just like that for me. So I'm coming up, man. I'm, I'm going to go over here for a minute, then I'm going to come back to where I was. I'm at this university, and I'm at the front end of my drinking. I came to the program four times before I came to stay. Uh, John or Chris, if this is your story, 
what I would do in my early attempts in Alcoholics Anonymous. Are we dancing? Okay, because can you hear me? Slower. What I would do in my early attempts at Alcoholics Anonymous, thank you, you know, my early attempts at Alcoholics Anonymous, I go to a meeting, I listen to a speaker up at the front of the group, somewhat like I am tonight. I pick out in what in my mind was the most profound thing the speaker said, go to a meeting tomorrow night, make sure the speaker's not there, not too many of you guys. I repeat what he said. I tack on a keep coming back. The program works. And I thought, because I claimed it from the podium, it would be true in my experience. And I kept getting loaded. I kept getting loaded. I kept getting loaded. New friends, in Alcoholics Anonymous, there are lots of thin lines. And even though they may be thin lines, they make a lot of difference. And one of the thinnest of lines that makes the most difference is a thin line between comparing and identifying. And I would always compare and I would never identify. And I couldn't find myself in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. And I couldn't find myself in any of you guys' stories. I would read the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. First thing I do, I read Bill's story. Psh, Bill's an older white guy. We don't have that in common. <laughs> Bill's a Wall Street stockbroker. Check out the way I handle money. You know we don't have that in common. Bill was a veteran of foreign wars. I'm a Vietnam era draft dodger. You know, you read Bill's story. He said there had been no real infidelity. Miss me on that one too. You know, and that is how I read the book. And that's how I listen to you guys' stories. And when I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous to stay, somebody taught me how to read the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, Ralph, the same way that you read the big book Alcoholics Anonymous is the same way that you listen to our members share their experience, strength, and hope. When you read the big book Alcoholics Anonymous and when you listen to our members share their stories, ask yourself three or four questions. Ask yourself, did I drink like he drank? Did I think like he thought? Did I feel like he felt? Or did I do what he did? And when I read Bill's story in the light of those questions, I found my story. I'm at this major university, and just like Bill, the drive for success was on. I proved to the world I was important. Just like him, drink started taking a more important and exhilarating part in my life. He said something strange in his story. He said out of this alloy of drink and speculation, out of this combination of his drinking and his thinking, he would later forge a weapon that would turn on him like a boomerang, all but cut him to ribbons. I don't talk like that. Old folk where I come from had a shortcut version for that one. They just used to say, trouble always starts out like fun. And you couldn't have told me when I was up in that dormitory, drinking that Red Mountain, drinking that Yago Sangria, drinking that Spinata, drinking that Tyrolia, drinking that Annie Greensprings, drinking that rum and coke, drinking that vodka tonic, drinking the screwdrivers, drinking the red, you know, now I'm moving up to Remy and I'm tangling, tangling. You couldn't have told me alcohol was going to do what it did because I'm the kind of guy, I'm the image guy. I'm at this major university rolling with people we were going to watch on TV at home playing in the NFL. Rolling with people we were going to be watching playing in the National Basketball Association. I'm rolling with cats that we were going to be watching that were political leaders in my town, in my state, and in my country. Rolling with people who will be captains of industry, and I'm going to be one of them. I'm going to be one of them. Couldn't have told me. Somehow I stumbled up out of that school, started working, took a job that should have allowed me to acquire what normal people acquire. I never did that. Let me give you a snapshot of Ralph's life. This is when alcohol was working. I'd buy a car. I'd make exactly three car payments. Then come find it. Come find it. First time I had a car repossessed, I heard the nerd to call the police department. I'm nine months behind on my car note, right? They came, they got, you know, I called the police. They do what they do. No, Mr. White, the rifle owner just came and picked this stuff up. Next two times, I didn't even call. I already knew. I'm the kind of brother that never had a problem balancing a bank book. Payday, I got money. 
Two days later, broke. Zero. No problem balancing my bank book. I stayed in the place from 1976 to 1979 without paying rent. A couple of baffling features about the disease I suffer from. One of them is this. I can't see my relationship with alcohol until I'm free of it. I can't see what it's doing to me when I'm in the mix. So some of the things that I'm sharing with you guys tonight that are crystal clear to me now, looking back in the rearview mirror of experience, were not at all clear to me when I was going through them. One fact stands out real clear to me about the days I thought alcohol was working. I used to go to work for two weeks to live for two days. That's it. That's all. I can't tell you the day, the time, the hour. Can't tell you where I was or what I was doing. When alcohol ceased to be a luxury for me and became a necessity, I can tell you that it did happen. Anybody else like me play the regret game in Alcoholics Anonymous? The regret game in Alcoholics Anonymous goes something like this. If I only knew then what I know now, I never would have took the, yeah, right. Reminds me of a story I like to tell about a little boy named Johnny. Johnny had a habit his father frowned on. Johnny used to like to play with himself. Father goes to work one day, comes home early, little Johnny's bedroom door is closed. Father opens the door without knocking. Sure enough, little Johnny's in the bedroom masturbating. His father looks at him and says, son, I thought I told you if you keep doing that, you'll go blind. And Johnny stopped and looked at his dad and said, well, daddy, can I just do it till I need glasses? You know. <laughs> I like that story because that story reminds me of me when I was in the life. I see you going down, you going down, you going, I'm just going to do it till I need glasses. And the book talks about seeking the Lord companion. Wasn't long before I became the Lord companion. And it's not enough time for me to share with you all the things that should have been signs along the way. I got married in 1980 on a Saturday afternoon in April. I had a bachelor party the night before my wedding. None of the guys at the bachelor party are getting married the next day. They all have sense enough to go home at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm still at my bachelor party till 7.30 in the morning, right? Me and my brothers, four of us made it to this program. They pour me in bed at 7.30. They get me up at 10 o'clock for my 1 o'clock wedding. I messed up. You know, I'm one of them nights where you're in the bed, you're trying to keep the bed from rotating. You don't have anything left to throw up but your stomach lining like that, you know. And so they get me up at 10 o'clock for my 1 o'clock wedding, and I'm, to and I'm supposed to say my own vows at the wedding, right? So I stagger up in there, and my then-wife-to-be took one look at me staggering and stumbling, and she looked at the preacher and said, okay, scratch the own vows. Say the regular on him, right? So now we get into the ceremony. It gets to my lines are cut to two words now, right? We get into the ceremony. It gets to me. I get ready to say I do. I say I and threw up all over. Oh. Passed out. Have not taken a wedding picture to this day. Pitiful. An incomprehensible demoralization. New friends, if you're anything like me, when I first hit the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, although the words you guys used in the rooms were not unfamiliar to me, the way you used them was not the way I used them in my everyday walk-around vocabulary. You were talking about this psychic change and this phenomena of craving and this allergy of the body. I needed some help with all those. But the first time I heard pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, I didn't need any help with that one. Folk like us don't need a dictionary for pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. I live pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization up close and personal. And I lived it over and over and over and over again. See, I'm the kind of father and I'm the kind of husband Remember sitting on my living room couch, my wife coming out of the bathroom real fast, pulling her pants up, going to the dining room table, picking her purse up off the table, clutching it real close to her as she went back to the bathroom. And I feel this tall because nobody was in the house but me and her, but it got like that in my house. 
I'm the kind of father and I'm the kind of husband. Remember coming home, sticking my key in the door. And I look over here and my wife and two-year-old daughter sitting here and they both crying. And I look over here and homeboy is sitting in my seat with a gun pointed at my stomach talking about I want my money right now. Fellas, let me holler at you guys for just a moment. I don't know about the rest of you, but I always had a lot of fears and a lot of doubts about do I have what it takes to be a father? Do I have what it takes to be a husband? Because if you're in the life, your track record already gives you your answer, right? Because what's the father's role and what's the husband's role? To protect and to provide. And it's a cold-blooded feeling, fellas, laying in bed with a woman night after night after night after night, knowing not only aren't you protecting, knowing not only aren't you providing, you're the one bringing the wolf to the door. I'm the kind of father and I'm the kind of husband. Remember sitting on my back porch, two-year-old daughter coming outside pulling in my coat. Daddy, daddy, that's my piggy bank. I remember stopping and giving her a little grin. Don't worry, baby. Daddy's going to put some dollar bills in here for this change. And I wasn't raised to be stealing from my daughter. I wasn't raised to be stealing from my wife. I was an alcoholic with no tools of recovery. And I did what it took to get what I needed to get. I've shared with you that my disease is progressive in nature. And in my experience, it's progressive in a couple of areas. Share one already. It takes more than it used to take in order for me to get the same effect. But my disease is progressive in another area. My behavior. My behavior gets progressively worse. I'm willing to do more, more readily, to chase this thing. First time I hit my wife's purse, if you would hook me up to a polygraph, I swear to you I would have passed. When I said, I'm not taking this $40, I'm not stealing this $40. I'm going to take this 40 and I'm going to replace it before she knows it's missing. I meant it. meant it with everything in me. Because I don't steal. Took the $40, went out, spent it up, came back looking for some more money. She had moved the purse. And I didn't look for the purse too hard because I couldn't believe I had hit it like that. And I said, I'm going to replace this money before she knows it's missing. I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes, every now and then, I reflect on all of the divine coincidences that had to line up for us to be sitting here this Saturday night in this place at this time, us. In 1934, a guy found himself in the hospital for the fourth time. Same hospital, same doctor. And that December in 1934, something happened. And what happened to do was so profound, it scared him. He had an experience that was so, it scared him. And he went to his doctor. And I like to think about it because I've been in treatment more than one time, and pretty soon they just start looking at you like, man, you full of it. But whatever it was that happened to Bill Wilson when he went to the doctor and said, doctor, doctor, and described to him what happened, it was so profound that from the outside looking in, the doctor said to him, dude, I don't know what happened, but you would look good holding on to this, whatever it is. And Bill Wilson left Towns Hospital that December of 1934, and he set about looking for people like me and you. And in six months' time, couldn't find nobody to stay sober, but he did. And some of his some of his boys that he used to do business with put together a business opportunity. And they said, we want you to represent our interests. We want you to go out of town. And he went to Akron, Ohio, and he traveled down there, and his business didn't come off too well. And he found himself in a hotel lobby on a Saturday afternoon. And that Saturday afternoon in that hotel lobby, he got thirsty. He could see the bar from the lobby, about $10 in his pocket, not even enough to pay the hotel bill. Could hear the ice clinking in the glasses, alcohol calling. But he had had a visit from a partner he has the month before, before he had gone back to the hospital, that had told him some things. And he remembered one, 
This is what I find so fascinating to me. A thought came to his mind. I don't know where it came from. It never would have came to me. He said, I need to find a drunk not to drink. I didn't look for many a drunk, but never not to drink. He said, I need to find a drunk not to drink. First time we as a society stood at the turning point. You know how when we read chapter 5, he said we stood at the turn. Us and the person of that man stood at the turning point. Find a drunk or take a drink. And Bill Wilson said yes to the idea of finding a drunk. No meetings. No sponsor. No inventory. No writing. No prayer. He said yes to the idea of finding. It's our bedrock. It's what we stand for and it's what we stand on. It still beats anything else. He found a drunk to work with. And through a series of divine coincidences, he got put in touch with a lady who had a husband like us. He said, I understand you got a husband with a drinking problem. He called her. Dr. Bob was passed out. He said, tell the guy on the phone I'll give him 15 minutes tomorrow. And they met that next day. And that 15 minutes turned to about four and a half hours. And those two gentlemen said about looking for people like me and you. And in about two years' time, they found about 40 people staying sober. About 40 people. Big. And I like to think that that New York hustler must have looked at the Akron physician, and he might have said something to him like this. He might have said, how are we going to let Ralph White know when it's his time? And they said, we'll put it in a book. And they put me in that book. That book started, they started writing that book in 1937. It was published in 1939. I got to this earth some years later, and I got to you guys some years later, and they put me in that book. Two weeks after I said I'm going to replace this money before she knows it's missing, same scenario presented. I'm out drinking, spent up all my money, came back looking for some more money. And the thought of replacing the money didn't even come to mind. It got replaced with a new thought. There's a line in the book that describes me to a T. We don't know why, but the alcoholic will be unable to recall with sufficient force. Pain, suffering, humiliation, weeks, even days ago. I said last time I spent 40, I took 40, came back looking for some more, and she had moved the purse. This time, I'll take all the money out of the purse, and that that I don't spend up, I'll sneak it back in the purse. I was off and running to hit my wife's purse on a regular basis. Did it one too many nights, came back one morning, screen door was locked, note on the screen door, Rest of your stuff is at your mama's house. Suitcase on the porch. I'm put out of my house. I'm now my daddy. My five brothers got put out of their respective homes over the course of that next year. And we all ended up at my mom's house and we damn near killed her. When I got put out of my house and went to stay at my mom's house, I th- my ex-wife thought it was something salvageable about this piece of man she married. She would bring my daughter over to my mother's house on Saturday afternoons so we could keep a father-daughter relationship. And I wanted to be a father to my little girl with everything in me. I really, really, really did. I wanted to take my girl to Disneyland, and I wanted to take her to Magic Mountain. I wanted to take her to a movie on a Saturday afternoon. I wanted to walk up the street with her little hand and my big hand, just take her to the store and buy her some ice cream. I wanted to sit my girl in my lap and read stories to her. I wanted to tuck her in bed at night and get a good night kiss. I wanted to get the look from my little girl that I've seen men in the fellowship get. The look like this is my daddy and this is my hero. And the best I could do on those Saturdays was 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Tell my mom something like I'm going to the store to buy rain some ice cream. I disappear. Sneak back on Sunday night when her mom was coming to get her. Some of those long Sunday nights, still remember sticking my head around the side of my mom's house. Tears flowing, flowing, 
And I see those two heads in the car and those headlights backing out the driveway. And I'd be thinking to myself as they, as they went out, there goes my life backing out this driveway. I've heard a lot of people share they were scared of dying out there, not a part of my story. Never scared of dying. Scared I was going to keep waking up to the same old thing. Monday the same as Tuesday the same as Sunday the same as Christmas. Over and over and over again. And I'm so glad God don't make misery comfortable. And on October the 11th, 1986, I got miserable enough and I got tired enough that I went into my fourth program of recovery. On October the 13th, I went into the Harbor Life Center on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. And that October in 1986, I was in a real dark place. And I was in a real bad way. I had not looked at myself full face in the mirror in over a year. I was full of regret and I was full of remorse. And I was full of I'll never be able to forgive myself for what I had done and what I had become. And it took me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And a speaker was standing in front of the group, somewhat like I am tonight. And he was sharing about taking from the family. And he was sharing about taking from the job. And I remember looking at him and thinking to myself, yeah, you're sharing about doing scandalous things, but you look scandalous. You should have been doing that. I'm different. Y'all ain't going to hear my business. And the speaker seemed like he knew I was in the room. He was reading my mail. He dropped something on me like this. If you're sitting in this room right now, you are not responsible for your disease, but you are responsible for your recovery. And you have just now tapped into a source of power much greater than yourself. And you don't have to drink and you don't have to use no matter what, provided you are willing to fulfill some conditions. And that speaker that night caught my attention. He went on to say, this is the only club you can be a member of where the worse off you are when you get here, better off your chances of staying. Got the message of hope from the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that he took me to. Described to me what I suffer from in a very strange way. He did it in a way I had never seen before, haven't seen since. We're the only people who do it. Dude was talking about me, talking about himself. I still the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. Talking about me, talking about himself. It's a few things I believe in. I'm going to go off the grid. I don't know where I'm going now, so let's see. Because last night I got a chance to talk a lot about the steps. Talk about my fellowship. I'm going to talk about this. There are a few things I believe in and I believe in them strongly. I believe in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in this power that's done for me what I've never been able to do for myself. And I believe in miracles. John, I know what you're thinking. I'm jittery and alone. I can't do this, but you can. You've just now tapped into a source of power much greater than yourself. And you just got a brand new family. I walked in these rooms 33 years old. And all I wanted was to learn how to spend, come home with a whole paycheck. And I wanted to get my ex-old lady back. I got her back. She didn't come back as my wife. Through the process of a man, she came back as a best friend. And I got a whole, and I've come home with a whole lot of paychecks intact. When I came in, these rooms, see, I'm not, you guys didn't bring me to Norway because I'm the speaker that's going to try to scare you into recovery. That's not my message. Oh, if you go back out there, still kicking it. Oh, if you go back out there, you need me. Nah, you know. Uh, people used to see me in what I used to think of as my heyday. And they see the way I was getting down. They'd be like, damn, Ralph, ain't you scared of overdose? And I'd be like, scared of overdose? <laughs> I'm scared of the deadly underdose. You better put some more up on here. You know, so the message of fear is not the message that'll hold alcoholic in my variety. 
You know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about the message that can interest a dude like me. is a message that has to have depth and it's got to have weight. The message tonight's speaker brings to you that's got the most depth and the most weight, you're looking at a guy who at 33 years old had given up on life. You're looking at a guy who at 33 years old did not know where his little girl was going to school and didn't know where his family was living. You're looking at a guy who at 33 years old had not answered anybody's 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock wake-up call to go to work in so long. I no longer thought I was employable. You're looking at a guy who came from a major university in my country and my job at the end of my drinking and using was taking the trash out for a 21-year-old. I was sleeping in the back of my mother's garage, and I was eating lemons off a neighbor's lemon tree for breakfast. And the men and women in this fellowship, fellowship I pray, you nursed me and you loved me back to health. You said something in those days that I found extremely strange. You said, let us love you till you can love yourself. I did not believe that one, not the condition I was in. How are you going to tell me you'll love something like me? I stink. If you turn your back on me, I'm liable to go up in your purse right now. How are you going to tell me you'll love something like this? And that was before I knew what takes place in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was before I knew what happens when the God in you reaches out to the God in me. That was before I knew that in Alcoholics Anonymous, we specialize in loving unlovable people. And you nursed me and you loved me back there. You gave me a way out. You know, I was scared of it at first. I was listening to somebody, I think Elizabeth was sharing, about the G word. And when I came in here, man, like I said last night, I was staunchly against that. I was standing in the back, man, don't try to feed that to me. I'm not trying to go there with you, you know. And, 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 and if you're in here and you knew, yeah, Mr. Speaker, with your 29 years, I know the God word flows out of your mouth pretty You don't understand me. Check this out. I did not come up in here walking toward the light. I came up in here running from the fire. If your ass is on fire, you in the right place too. Don't even get caught up in the whole God thing at first. So I came in here, man, and I, I got in. I got all the way in. If you're sitting in here right now and you think this program is just about not drinking and just about not using, you're shortchanging the program and you're shortchanging yourself. I'm not knocking physical sobriety, don't get me wrong. If you just don't drink and you just don't use, you might stop going to jail on the weekends. If you just don't drink and you just don't use, you might make it home with a whole paycheck. If you just don't drink and you just don't use, you might make it to work on Monday morning. But what this program has to offer is a whole lot more than that. What this program is really about is about obtaining and maintaining access to a source of power that does for me what I can't do for myself. What this program is really about is about obtaining and maintaining access to a source of power that can do anything but fail. What this program is really about, you know, we are, we, we are technological society, we are Instagram, we sell. You know, you want to see Alcoholics Anonymous right now? You want to see what the program Alcoholics Anonymous looks like? You want to take a selfie? What the program is really about is about taking people like us, drunks and boosters and convicts and con artists, failures as parents, failures as kids, broken down pieces of men and women who don't have dreams and goals and hopes anymore. This program takes people like us and it sticks us together in one room and I stick one hand in your hand and the other hand in God's hand. And we pick up our beds and we walk out of these rooms as mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, sons, daughters, employees, employers, role models in our community. This program is about growth. This program is about change. If it's going to be any changes made in my life, it begins and it ends with me. I'm a wholehearted guy. I'm an all-in guy. You know, I'm going to share a couple of things with our new friends. You know, one of the things, I'm going to share some stuff from the Simple Kid of Spiritual Tools. If you have somebody come up in here and they talk about, if I'm not sharing from the book, it's not, check this out. I'm not throwing no stones, but be careful. When Bill Wilson wrote the book, in our chapter of Vision for You, he said more will constantly be revealed to you and to us. If you think God is contained within the binding or the covers of a book, you got a little God. My sponsor always says, 
The book is not the treasure. It's the map. The book is not the treasure. It's a map. Don't get caught up in thinking, I gotta learn the information. I gotta learn what it is and then I gotta teach because the bet, if I think that the key to this deal is learning, that's, that's human power. I can learn better than you. I can speak better than you. I can talk. This ego reducing process in the wrong hands like me can be an ego inflating process. I'm real careful. My sponsor says, Ralph, you suffer from a spiritual disease. We don't treat a spiritual disease through mechanical means. God works the way he works. And the older I am in this recovery process, the less convinced I am that I know how he do what he, he just do what he do. And he don't need my permission. He does need my cooperation. He does what he does and he does it real well. You know, so I've been on this path, man, and I'm, in, I'm, I'm excited about it and I'm enthusiastic about it. But I'm I'm not limited to Let me share some things that are not going to come from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to our new friends. I'm going to share a couple of things from the big big book of Ralph White's experience. Put this in your simple kit of spiritual tools. One, get a sobriety day. If you don't have one, you ain't got one. If somebody walks up to you and say, what's your sobriety day? And you say, uh, you don't have one. You ain't intended to keep it permanent. Guess what? Anybody in here that's been doing this thing for a minute, you ask them. They'll guard it. They'll cherish it. They'll polish it. They'll buy pendants for it. They'll do all kinds. Sobriety day is the most precious thing I have. I know it like my name. So get a sobriety day. Then get a home group. I love this primary purpose deal you guys have going on there. Get a home group. A home group, I don't know if you guys ever had the show out here of Cheers, but at home we had a, a show on TV called Cheers. And a home group is something like a Cheers bar, somewhere you go where everybody know your name, you know. In a home group. Then get a sponsor. A lot of people put a lot of requirements on sponsorship, and I don't have a problem with it. I don't argue with it. Sometimes I think it's putting a little too much on a newcomer expecting them to be able to to sit down and conduct a reasonable interview with somebody. Do you have a sponsor? Who has a sponsor? Get a sponsor. And the reason I say that, I'm not trying to be flipped. Sometimes you just get one and then you move on. But here's the deal. There's power in that conversation. There's power in that concession that I don't know. Because most of us walk up in a place like this. Yeah, I'm a grown-ass man. You can't tell. Yeah, we know. We know. We know. It's something about help me and God will fill in the blanks. There's power. Get a sponsor. And then because I'm doing this thing for life, and if it wasn't fun... You guys would have another speaker up here tonight. Get a road dog. Road dog is not the same as your sponsor. I don't know if that translates out here. So get a good butt, get a running buddy, get a road dog. You know, my brother Ron and my friend Strange, the three of us, we, we started hitting means. And see, a road dog is different than your sponsor. Your sponsor is probably not running with you. Plus the fact we as sponsors, we know you're not always coming totally on. You try to come correct to your sponsor. No, sir, I'm not looking at girls in the meetings. No, I'm not, you know. <laughs> but your road dog is who you get real with. That's who you talk about your sponsor to, too. And with your dog, you're like, man, did you see them honeys at that meeting? Yeah, we're going back to that meeting. You know, that's... <laughs> And started, you know, and, and I embarked on this path, man. I got my feet set on a path to really go somewhere. And in the course of these 29 years that I've spent with you guys, I've had a lot of ups and I've had a lot of downs. I love when Elizabeth was sharing about that, that place at th- 12 years sober. Thir- 22 years sober. Lost everything. Material. Lost a 20 year marriage. Lost all my money, lost my house, had some real estate, and enrolled it. And I like to say the market did, but I'm the guy that makes decisions based on self that later puts me in position to be hurt. And I'm never a victim. Most free in line in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, are problems we think are basically of our own making. 
I don't trip off that. I stand up. It's me. And I own it. But, it, you know, it went broke and the rest of that. I'm 22 years sober. And I thought that they needed, you know, a recovery home for old time. So I'm going out. I'm going out to talk. And I'm flying somewhere. I don't even remember where. But I'm in O'Hare Airport on a layover. And I call my college roommate. His father had died. And so I called offering condolences. And my roommate still had all, he's a different guy than me. He's not frivolous. And he, he kept all his stuff. And he was sharing, yeah, man, I picked up these other pieces of property. And, I did. and some unknown foreign feeling I hadn't felt in a long time started coming over me. I was envious. I was jealous. I was angry. I was resentful. I was humiliated. When I first got sober, I had an excuse for not having anything. What's my excuse now? I used to share with my guys and my sponsees, you're not your stuff. And then when I lost my stuff, I got face-to-face with, okay, sometime you're going to have to be the message you carry. I didn't know how heavy that was until I didn't have my stuff. So I'm in a way airport and I'm crying. I'm going to share something with you guys. Because you'll hit those pots. Anybody here, you ever go places where you don't have cell reception? And you don't have any? Well, I was in the airport. And I'm, I'm, I couldn't pray. It's like when you lose your cell phone and now you don't know nobody's number. I didn't know God's number. Couldn't feel him. You'll hit spiritual dead zones. Just like you hit dead zones where there's no cell reception. It'll feel like it's no grace reception. Spiritual dead zones, resentment. Spiritual dead zones, anger. Spiritual dead zones, jealousy. Spiritual dead zones, envy. Spiritual dead zones, self-righteousness. Spiritual dead zones, judgment. Spiritual dead zones. I'm in a spiritual dead zone in order, and I'm crying. Can't feel it. But I'm going to tell you something about training your feet. Forget your head. The disease centers in my thinking, recovery centers in my feet. You don't know when you train in your feet. You don't know when you go to meetings every day, you train in your feet. You don't know when you call your sponsor all the time so that you know his number, you train in your feet. You don't know when you take calls from your sponsee, you train in your feet. You don't know when you go out on a panel to share with your experience, strength, and all, you train in your feet. You don't even know that's what you're doing. But I have trained feet. Can't pray. Can't find God, not even trying to find God, mad at God, you know. But I got trained feet. And what I do when I'm crying in the airport, I call my sponsor or I call a closed mouth friend. And this day I call one of my boys. This is what you do. It'll work for you too when you can't find him. When you're in a dead zone. When you can't feel the power. When you just can't get it on your own. This is what you do. I called my boy, and we started talking. Swear to God, he three-wayed me. God got on the line. He got on the line. When you get into a fellowship like this, I guarantee you when it's two or more of us, he'll get on the line. When it's this many of us right now, he's on the line. He's on the line. wouldn't want to get all in because it's going to be days when it gets dark in recovery. It's going to be that if you're sitting in here right now and this thing seems so, oh, they up in there. That's for weak people talking about that. That's for weak. I want to let me share something with you, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to get on the recovery train, fellas, strap on your big boy pants. Girls, put on your big girl panties because this is for grown people. Recovery is for grown men and grown women. And if you want to be a player in this game, the players are the people who are the fathers and the mothers. You know, we got spectators in here and we got fans. That's all right. But if you want to play, be a player in your life. I don't know if you guys have the game at home. You know, we had a game the kids played at home, you know, hockey. But, you know, quit playing the AA hockey, but put your left foot in and put your left foot out and put your right foot in. No, all in. All in. Tell you the benefits of being all in. Because every now and then, for a guy named Ralph, 
life gets big. Life gets big every now and then. Sometimes we've been talking about spiritual perfection, spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. What does it look like? No mistakes. Don't trip off that. Don't be scared to make decisions. Don't be scared to try stuff. When I'm on this third step path and if I'm seeking, because ain't but two things going to happen. Lessons and blessings. Lessons and blessings. It's all that's going to take place. Don't trip. Don't trip. That's why I need this power. But if I ain't got this power behind me, psh, you don't learn the lesson. You're going to keep going back to the same blackboard. You know, but with this power behind me, two things, lessons and blessings. And so in the course of these years, what did I learn in that 22nd year? Now that I'm on the other side of the valley, I learned you can grow wherever you plant it. I learned you can grow in the valley. I learned that's where God do his best work. I learned now because of that experience, I can stand up in front of anybody and say, guess what? You can lose a 20-year marriage in front of everybody and you ain't got a drink. I'm talking about things I know. You can lose your house in front of everybody in recovery and you ain't got a drink. I'm talking about things I know. You can have to get IRS $80,000 and you ain't got a drink. I'm talking about things that I know. Here's the kicker. You can do all those things. And you can find some place every single day to laugh and be grateful. I'm talking about things I know. You can come out on the other side stronger every now and then. That's why I stay in the middle of this thing. I don't know if any of you, anybody in here, if you're a fight fan, you know, if, if, if you're a boxing fan and every now and then sometimes, and this guy is getting beat. Life is going to do that sometime. And every now and then you got to take a stand and eight count. That's all right. Because guess what? Alcoholics Anonymous, ladies, you may not understand this term. I don't know if this term is used over here, but in, in boxing, you got to cut man. And when you come out of there and you've been beat up that round and you go to the corner and the cut man stitches you up, Alcoholics Anonymous is the best one. We'll stitch you up and we'll throw you back up. Ruben, you a champion. You a champion, goddamn it. Get back out there. You know, and we'll stitch you up and we'll put you out there. Baby, you a queen. Baby, you can do this. You can do this. You a champion. And we'll put you back out there and we'll put you back out there, put you back. And next thing you know, you'll be the one putting me back. Saying, you can do this. You can do this. That's what we do. That's who we are. That's the Alcoholics Anonymous. Who wouldn't want to be part of a thing like this? You know, I'm, I'm, I got two daughters at home. You know, my oldest daughter, the one who was a piggy bank I was going in, I was going in the piggy bank. January the 18th of this year, she got married. You know, and when the guy that walked her down the aisle was not her play daddy, her stepdaddy, her uncle, her dad. She the only dad. She, he's the only dad she know. Got sober when she was three years old. And you guys did something with a guy. And so I'm walking her down the aisle and she's shaking on my arm. She's shaking. And we're going down the aisle and she's talking. You know, the music's playing. And she said, Dad, this is the happiest day of my life. I'm sad about one thing. I said, what is that, baby? She said, this is the last day I'll ever be rain white. But I'll always be daddy's girl. Piggy bank. Got a 20-year-old daughter, Boston University. Never seen her daddy load her. One day at a time, she never will. You know the grace moments? It's people in here that can tell you about them. Chris, I want you to get your own. I want you to taste your own moment of grace. I want you to have your own aha moments. My daughter had moved into her first crib, right, her first house. She's at Boston University, and she got two roommates, and all the parents were there helping the kids move. You guys know what it's like. You Every now and then, Grace will come calling, and it'll come so strong on you, and you'll know it by name. And we move it. I had to go to a bathroom. I had to go to one of the bathrooms in the house. Just take a break, because it just came on me. This is what dads do. They move their little girls into their first place. You think I'm not grateful? Where the sponsors at up in here? Who sponsors people? Let me see your hands. 
Isn't it a wonderful thing, a marvelous thing, to see somebody come in whose eyes, and they see them light up, to see the light come on in their eyes? Isn't that a wonderful thing? And there's some other lights that come on that we don't get to see all the time. I like to bring them up every now and then. Because every time I go to a meeting, right now, it's happening right now. Every time I go to a meeting, I get to participate in some little girl or some little boy getting ready to have mama back. Every time I go to a meeting, we're doing it right now. I get to participate in some family getting ready to have daddy come home. Every time I go to a meeting, we're doing it right now. I get to participate in some man or some woman getting ready to have a hell of a maid in their life. Every time I go to a meeting, who wouldn't want to be part of a fellowship like that? You know, I've always wanted to do something important. And I've always wanted to do something significant. And I can think of nothing more important and nothing more significant than being a participating member of the life-saving, life-changing experience that is Alcoholics Anonymous. Whenever anybody anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand aid to be there. And for that, I'm responsible. I take it real serious. You'll never hear Ralph White say, I don't know why I'm sober. I know exactly why I'm sober. I get a blessing so that I can be a blessing. Recovery for me is a gift from God. What I do with my recovery, that's my gift to God. My name is Ralph White. I am an alcoholic.